0: So put our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 34 this morning. I've entitled the morning's message, The True Shepherd. And let me point out that um, really a different tone that Ezekiel now is going to deliver. Let's pick it up in verse eleven, chapter thirty-four. For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they are scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pastures And their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. And they shall lie down in a good field and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back which was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And as for you, O flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between ram and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures, and to have drunk unto clear waters that you must follow the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they have drunk what you have followed with your feet. Therefore, Thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulders and butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, And he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. I don't know if you noticed it, but 18 times in this chapter, the Lord says, I will. I will do this, I will do that. And I will separate the sheep from the goats. If you look at verse 17, it's actually a prophecy that is going to take place immediately after the tribulation. Matter of fact, in my cross-references for verse 17, Matthew 25, verse 32, where the Lord says, I will judge between sheep and sheep and between ram and goats. Well, that's what Matthew 25, verse 32 says. It says, immediately after the days of the tribulation, The Lord will come and he will judge the nations and I will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will enter into the millennial kingdom and the goats will be cast into hell, which is a big part of our Bible study this morning. But because we're going into a new section, let me just quickly divide up the book of Ezekiel very quickly for you this morning. It really divides nicely into three different sections. Chapters 1 through 22, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. Ezekiel is in Babylon. And they basically have the same message for 40 years. And that is that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to take them into captivity. And they're going to be there for 70 years. Now the first part of chapter 34, verses 1 through 10, is about false prophets. The false prophets were telling the people, don't worry about a thing. God would never destroy Jerusalem. Don't worry about the temple. God would not destroy his own temple. They were proven wrong. The temple was destroyed, Solomon's temple. And um, in contrast to the false shepherds in verses 11 through 24 to the end here, we have the Lord referring to himself in the term, I will, I will, I will. Matter of fact, it happens 18 times. Now, in the second section of the book of Ezekiel, chapters 25 to 32, Jerusalem has fallen, and now the Lord uses King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to destroy cities and nations, and they would be Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, and then four whole chapters given to the judgment of Egypt. They all fell under Nebuchadnezzar, And uh, he was the most powerful man and uh, the most powerful dictator probably than the the world has ever known. The third division that we're starting right now in 33 to the end, 48, is now Israel's future. So we're really at a crossroads. And we're turning a corner of one of uh, doom and gloom, what was going to happen to them, to the hope that the Lord is going to establish his kingdom. Chapter 34, the second part of it, is about the millennial reign. And um, David being set up sort of a vice-regent in the place of the Lord, and I'll talk about more when we get closer to the end of, of the study. Chapters 40 to 48, well, let me back up just a little bit. This Wednesday night, as we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse, we're going to go back and do all 34, all 35, and all 36. And what we're leading into is uh, the return of the nation of uh, Israel back to their land again. And then, when we get to chapters 36 and 37 we actually have them in the land. Now, I stand before you teaching a a historical book, but when we get to 36 and 37, we're talking things that have happened in my lifetime. Um, Well, I was born in 51, and God kept his promise and brought Israel back, and they became a nation in 1948. And that's happening, that's current times. Israel will be 70 years old again, Uh, next year, 2018, from 1948. It's one of the biggest miracles in the Bible. It's never happened before, where a nation has been dispersed after that long and have come back into the land. And not only have they come back into the land, but when Jesus was there, they, they didn't even speak Hebrew. But the Bible says when they come back, they're going to speak their native tongue. So if you would visit Israel today, they speak Hebrew. You get up in the morning, you say, Bokotov, good morning. And uh, they have um, that ancient language restored, just like the scripture says. Once we get past 37, then you have 38 and 39. We're watching that unfold right before our very eyes. We call it the Ezekiel 38 war. The nations are listed for us. The the main nations that are involved in this attack on Israel are Russia, Gog and Magog, and Iran, called Persia, which just changed its name within the last hundred years from Persia to Iran. And the other game players that are in there would be Assad and Syria. And gang, that could happen before this year is out very, very easily because the stage is set for that to happen. So, all that to say this, this is not a history lesson this morning. Um, I'm glad we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because it's going to point out something that I think we've, we've gotten numb to. Um, we use the, 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 the terminology, you know, the, the frog in the, in the pot. And you throw them in the pot when the water's cool, and then just slowly turn up the heat and that frog will never leave, he'll boil, he'll cook, but he gets assimilated to it, and unfortunately for the church, we've, uh, we've been assimilated to the dangers of what happens after a person dies, as if it's, we're indifferent to it, and one of my, my hopes and prayers this morning is that we realize that we have people that we love and care about, And if they die in their sins, they're going to hell. And I hope that comes through and sort of motivates us to do what's ever necessary um, to win them to the Lord. And on the other hand, the good news, we have a funeral here on Wednesday. Um, I wasn't expecting Jerry to go. It's the strangest thing. I woke up in the morning and I, I looked at Judy and I said, I gotta go see Jerry today. And when I went looking for him, he wasn't in the nursing home he was at. I went to the other one, the girl gives me this deer-in-the-headlight looks when I asked for Jerry Coheny, and she said he died yesterday. No, Nobody was expecting that. And he just my point is you just never know. And um, the great thing about Jerry <clears throat> is he's rare. I get a little bit more time in a second service, so I chat a little bit longer. Jerry was 75 years old when he got saved. He was a scientist, he was an agnostic. And he's got family members that go to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And they were prayed for their dad their entire Christian life. And I attribute Jerry's salvation. Uh, Whenever they would visit home, they'd bring him to church every once in a while and somehow this agnostic, for 35 years of his life, got saved. And uh, when Jerry got saved, he got saved. He gave his tes- testimony out at Nature's Edge before he was baptized. He's the only guy that I remember getting baptized being that well-dressed. <laughs> he was dressed well. He, he looked like a scientist getting baptized, I suppose. I don't know. But a brilliant man. And, um, but, you know, we'll be able to share the hope that we have that um, um, the probability factors of people coming to Christ at that age are rare. The grooves, the traditions are so deeply grounded in. And um, I can't get too sidetracked there, but uh, the family told me to tell you that you're all invited, um, and it'll be this Wednesday um, at at 10. So please... uh, uh, please feel free to come. Anyway, the, the last part after the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, then we have, in a chronological order, we go into the millennium. Uh, the millennium is a thousand-year period of time. All of chapter 40 to 48, that's what it's about. It, it is extremely detailed on what the priests should wear, what are the dimensions of the temple, how will the land be divided up? Who gets what and what, what are the boundaries? Extremely detailed of between 40 and 48. And so that chronology begins here in chapter 34 but primarily it's gonna deal with the 1,000 year reign. But this morning I'd like to look at those who die in their wickedness and go to hell and those who die after turning from their wickedness and live and go to live in Abraham's bosom. What I did on Wednesday, I had so many people that asked me for these charts. I thought I'm gonna go through it again on Sunday quickly and let them know that we're making copies right now. Um, I mentioned this during the first service and before this place was half filled out, they were already gone. But I found out you can go online and we have them online on our website. So what I'm gonna put up, there will be some on the uh, welcome table as we go through um, what the old what happened to a person in the Old Testament when he died? Uh, before I do, I'd like you to look at chapter thirty-three, verses thirteen through nineteen. We went through this verse by verse on Wednesday night. Chapter thirty-three, um, verse thirteen says, "When I say to the righteous that he will surely live." But he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity. Uh, None of his righteous works will be remembered. But because of his iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. Again, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right. If the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, walks In the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he will surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed will be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right, he will surely live. Yet the children of Israel uh, will say, the way of the Lord is not fair, but the way, their way, which is not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he will die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. So here we have, from an Old Testament perspective, and I'm going to put this up on the screen now, and while we're putting this up on the screen, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16. And basically what we're reading is there were people before Jesus came That lived and died. Some um, died in faith and uh, sought to live after righteousness. After all, everybody has a conscience. Everybody knows what's right, what's wrong. If I ask you, is it right or wrong to steal? What would we all say? That's wrong. How do we know? I have a conscience. So, before the gospel was completely presented, what happened to people in the Old Testament if you lived wanting to live righteously? Well, you went to a place, let's start right at the top, um, on the third heaven, what's quoted there in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. Paul wrote this. He says, I know a man 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But he was taken to the third heaven. And he said that he heard things that were so undescribable that would be impossible for anybody to translate it into human terms. It was so wonderful. And so he's referring to himself, but he said he went to the third heaven, which is heaven. Then there's a second heaven going down the chart. <clears throat> um, we say, well, we're going to go stargazing tonight and look, look up into the heavens. But what we're really saying is we're looking into the galaxies. And um, that would be the uh, second heaven. The first heaven is our atmosphere, the world in which we live. And I like what the guy has on, on the left there, the battleground. And the reality that there is a war taking place, as I speak this morning, over the souls of men. We might be caught up in whatever but what's really going on is your enemy goes around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. They got their own thing going on. And it's about your soul. And if he can keep you sidetracked with thinking about anything other than heaven and hell, then he's happy. But here is the battleground. What do we have? We have, we have angels. Doesn't the Bible say some of you have entertained angels, unaware? You ever know that you had an angel over for supper one night? You have. Some have entertained angels unaware. So we have angels here. One-third of Jesus' ministry was casting out demons. So we have demons involved, and we have people. But the battle is over their souls. So now, when a person dies from from an Old Testament perspective... um, they would go to one of two places. And if you look under where it says earth, it says the upper region of Sheol. Now Sheol is the Hebrew word uh, for Abraham's bosom. Hades in the Greek. So when an Old Testament man died, he would go to one of two places. He would either go to Abraham's bosom, Jesus told the Thief on the cross, he called it paradise. But if you died in your sin, then you went to the lower regions of Sheol, um, which is a place of torment. Now Jesus talked about this in Luke 16, and that's why I have you there. I do not believe this is a parable, because parables do not use proper names. And we have the proper name of Lazarus in this story, so I believe it's a factual event. Verse 19... Now, there was a certain man who was clothed in purple, fine linen. He fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar whose name was Lazarus, and he was full of sores, and he was laid at the gate, just desiring to be fed with the crumbs from which the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man was buried and died. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story, which means Jesus hasn't died for the sins of the world yet. And now we've got a couple of people dying. Where do they go? Well, it says that the angels carried one to a place of comfort called Abraham's bosom, and the other one ended up in hell, verse 22, the rich man being in torment in Hades. That's the Greek word here for this uh, for for hell he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried and said Father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in torment in this flame alright let's just stop for a second and digest and comprehend he's dead no he's not he's very conscious he's aware of of his state he wants to be comforted he is able to communicate through this barrier to Abraham have a conversation with him and um, he's asking to be comforted because he's in pain and he's in torment and he's very conscious and he's even aware that he has five brothers that are still yet alive let's continue the story Abraham said, son, remember in your lifetime you had good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to there cannot, nor can those from here pass to us. All right, let's stop and look at the chart. You have Abraham's bosom. Jesus hasn't died on a cross yet. So we have a poor guy, The Lord said, blessed are um, the poor in spirit, um, but maybe are rich in faith. And some people who have nothing, you know, the Lord is their everything. Evidently, that was the case with, with Lazarus. But he went to this place of comfort. And now underneath that, in this gray area, there's this gulf fixed, a no man's land, neutral zone, if you will, And one can't go from one side to the other, but evidently they could communicate with each other. And so he says in verse 27, all of a sudden reality set in to the rich man. I am stuck here forever, and there's nothing I can do about it. So maybe for the first time in his life, he thought about somebody other than himself. And he said, well, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they come also to this place of torment. He has brothers that are not walking with God. But Abraham said, look, they have Moses and the prophets. Another way of saying, look, they have the scriptures. People have Bibles. Um, The Gideons had their luncheon this last weekend. We have people in the fellowship that are part of the Gideons, and and their job is to get the Bible out to people. But here they're saying they got the Bible, but he wants a miracle. And he said, no, Father Abraham, he said if they don't hear the prophets, they're not gonna believe a miracle. And he says, verse 30, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes from the dead, then they'll repent. But he said, no, if they don't hear the Bible, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one would rise from the dead. Now I take you here because we're still under the Old Testament, what happens to a person when he dies. And uh, he couldn't go to heaven, Lazarus, because Jesus hadn't yet died. So there's this chamber that's called, Jesus called it, paradise to the thief on the cross. Well, that's a little sidetrack here. I got a phone call this this week from a Baptist minister in Texas, and um, he has a deacon in his church. He went to our Bible college, and um, he teaches the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And um, he called up here, and he said, look, one of my deacons has a brother who's dying at one of your hospitals. And I only feel comfortable with setting a Calvary Chapel pastor out here to present the gospel. Would you go? So I went. And um, I didn't know this man. He didn't know me. And I small talked for a little bit, just trying to break the ice. And um, um, was able to have a conversation with him. And when he was finally opened up enough where he felt comfortable talking about how serious his condition was, I asked him, I said, what would happen if you would die? On what grounds could you make it into heaven? And uh, he looked at me and said, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good man. And I said, and I hung my head and I said, that was the last thing I wanted to hear you say. And so then I began to explain to him, I said, look, I am no better than you are, and you're no better than I am. And what the Bible teaches is everybody has sinned, everybody. And Jesus said there's none that are good. I asked him if he ever stole anything. He said, yeah. I asked him if he ever lied. He said, yeah. And I asked him if he ever looked at a woman with lust. He says, oh, yeah. (laughs) And I said, well, we just broke three of the Ten Commandments. Still want to call yourself good? And the lights began to go on. And I explained for the next half an hour, the best I could, the simple gospel of Jesus. That you're saved by grace apart from works. You're not good, you're bad, we all are. And um, unless you repent, you will perish. Well, I prayed with him, but I explained to him that his prayer had to be personal between him and Jesus. And that he had to come to God on the Lord's terms. And the Lord's terms is, is either all Jesus and you accept the gift. That's as simple as it is. And I left him with that and um, um, left him with a prayer. He was appreciative, shook my hand. And um, I do not know this state, and I realized I got sidetracked, and I hope I can find my way back to the Bible study. <laughs> okay, so oh, we're, we're in Luke 16. <clears throat> So here is a man who is aware that he is in this place called hell forever, but he's got people that he cares about. And now he wants somebody to go and witness to them, just like this brother uh, who's saved down in Arizona. Did I say Texas? It was really Arizona. Um, who is concerned about his brother who might die, just like this man right here was concerned. All right, what happened to the wicked after their death in the Old Testament? Well, we find here the righteous went to a place called Abraham's bosom, and uh, those in their sin would uh, go to the lower region called Sheol. Let's put the next one up. Let's go from the Old Testament, now let's go to after Jesus died on the cross. After Jesus died on the cross, I'd like you to turn here to 2 Peter 2, verse four, 2 Peter 2. And as you're turning, let's let's repeat our chart. Start at the top, what do we have? Third heaven, that's still there. The universe is still in place. Um, Now, we have with the New Testament, after Jesus died on the cross, we still have the battle going on. So we have people, we have angels, and we have Satan and demons, all involved on the earth. Now if you go lower than that, we have no longer, do we have Abraham's bosom or paradise? It's no longer there. And So now when a person dies, I'll be reading this, um, these very verses At Jerry's funeral this Wednesday. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 1, for we know, I like the certainty of that, for we know that if our earthly house, this tabernacle or tent, were destroyed, that we have a building of God not made with hands, it's eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our house which is from heaven. We're confident. And I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and then be present with the Lord. What happens to a person? What happened to Jerry the moment he breathed his last? Well, instantaneously, he got a new body. He moved. Chuck would often say, don't ever say that in the paper, Pastor Chuck Smith died. That's a lie. He said, you can put up there, Pastor Chuck Smith moved. He moved from an old tent to a glorious new body that is eternal in the heaven. And it says here we groan for it. Man, I'm groaning for it more and more every year that goes by. Give me a new one. The old one's wearing out. And so what we have, if there's no longer Abraham's bosom, what, what happened? Well, if, before I, I go any further, I want to point out there, you see in the bottom right-hand corner the place called Tartarus? I want to explain that to you. And if you're in Second Peter 2, verse 4, I want you to know, let's read it first. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment... The word hell there in the, in the um, uh, translation is the word Tartarus. It is the only place in the Bible that this word exists. So in other words, the angels that sinned, and he has above it the demons that sinned by having sexual relationship with women that produced giants in the book of Genesis. He's referring to Genesis chapter 6. And evidently, there is a special place reserved for them that's called Tartarus. It's a chamber that evidently is separate from the different levels that I believe exist in hell. Let me just, uh, again, second service, we can take a little bit of time. Let me compare it to Jude. Now, Jude is right before the book of Revelation. It's only one chapter long. Let me just read one verse from there. Can't find it. It's on page twelve ninety six, and I'm looking at verse six. And this is what Jude said: "And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day." Now, the word Tardis does not come up here. This has more to do with Satan, Lucifer, deceiving one-third of the angelic realm that were once angels, who are evidently different from the ones from Genesis 6. They have their own place reserved for them, and the word there for reserved in their chains is not Tartarus, it's just hell. Now, we have some demons that like I said, one-third of the Lord's ministry, there, there are demons on this planet right now. Remember the guy raising pigs in the land of the Gadarenes? And he was possessed by Legion. What's your name? Legion. Because we are many. And they say, we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to torment us before the time? Would you send us into the swine? And he said, go. And one of our favorite things in Israel when we're on the Sea of Galilee. There's only one place that that could have happened. It's at A-Site, where they would have run down that cliff and they would have drowned. But what were they? They were um, demon possessed um, pigs that that drowned. That's the first time they ever had deviled ham. It didn't exist. Didn't exist. Didn't exist before then. Never mind. I heard that one before, huh? (laughs) There are demons that are here, but then Jude says there's demons that are held in chains. Revelation says that some of them are going to be let loose by the Euphrates and bring the kings of the east to the battle of Armageddon. There's some, according to 2 Peter chapter 4, that are cast into hell, but the word there is Tartarus. So I like what the guy does here. He lays out the difference between Sheol and Hades, hell and Gehenna, and Tartarus. I could also throw in their outer darkness because the Bible says there's that place of outer darkness. And there's a whole Bible study within itself. My research on it this week um, is part of the lake of fire. So why would they call it the outer darkness? Probably because they're away from um, the eternal New Jerusalem, where the light that comes from there, they're removed from that light. For a second, think of the worst thing you've ever done. Just, that, just one. And now imagine that you're with yourself, by yourself. You know, the, the stories we told when we were kids when we were young and foolish, and said, yeah, we're going to go to hell and jam with... Uh, all of our rock and roll buddies that are going to be down there. It's going to be one big party. No, 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 no. You're going to be all by yourself. And you're going to be stuck with thoughts in your head that you're never, ever going to be able to get rid of. You see, there's not only physical torment. There's mental torment. And you will be alone by yourself, away from the light of God. And that's my two cents worth on what outer darkness is. I bring it up because it's another name that refers to this place place of torment. Now, as we make our way back to um, this one, let's go to the next chart which we'll bring up again. You'll be able to pick these up after the study this morning. This one is called uh, simply the end. and I want to walk us through the seven points And it begins with the rapture of the church. The battle is still going on. I believe the rapture is imminent. I believe it's close. I believe that the rapture has to happen before we enter into the great tribulation. So when we're raptured, what happens? Well, if you look up where zero, it, it says there's a throne, the judgment seat of Christ. So this is where you're going to be judged. First Corinthians uh, three talks about this place. It has nothing to do with your sin. You will never be put to shame at this judgment. You'll be, it's also called the bema seat judgment and they get that from an Olympic term when you compete in a race. If you're in the Olympics, you get a gold, silver or bronze. That's the idea here. It has nothing to do with your sin but it has everything to do with what you did with your life now, like the old saying, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And Jesus said, when you do a good deed, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, because your Father who sees in secret, what? Will reward you what? Where? At the judgment seat of Christ. So we're rewarded in heaven, now 1 Corinthians 3 said that some people all their works were only done for themselves and they have absolutely no treasure in heaven but here's the good news but yet it says their soul will be saved. So here's a person that lived for themselves but they accepted Jesus um, and they, they were born again but they just didn't invest. I think, you know, with the information that we have, it's more valuable than any inside information you could ever get on Wall Street. Somebody want to give me an amen to that? What's more valuable than this? What more valuable information and insight? How can you put a price tag on this information? You can't. It's priceless. And so it just makes common sense and wisdom, if you're wise, to invest in eternal things. Good place for an amen. Don't worry, I'm not gonna take an offering right now. It's not gonna happen. I'm not fishing here. But if you're wise, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. All depends what your investing is. Jesus said, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And so we find here that the rapture takes place. We go to the judgment seat of Christ everybody's joy is going to be full. The guy who has a lot of treasure in heaven, his joy is going to be full. The guy who has nothing in heaven, guess what? His joy is going to be full too because he's home. But now we enter into the tribulation. And we have in the tribulation, number two, you have the beast and the false prophet. And we have that seven-year period of time, according to Daniel, that is for Israel only, and the Jewish people. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3 is about the church, and beginning with chapter 6, it's all about um, the war that goes on between the beast and the Antichrist. After the seven-year tribulation, number three, um, we have the thousand-year reign of Christ. Three and four go together. Um, The saints... Um, who have been raptured and those that were martyred during the tribulation period, number three, will reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years. Uh, Turn with me to Revelation 20, verse one through five. Revelation 20. And then number four, while we're reigning with the lord for a thousand years we find that the beast and the false prophet if you follow the arrow there they're cast into the lake of fire that's after the battle of armageddon but satan it says uh, is if you look at the scriptures there's revelation 20 verses 1 through 5 so we're going to read 4 and 5 together as we look at revelation Chapter 20, let's dive in with verse one. Then an angel came down. I should mention that chapter 19 is the second coming and the battle of um, Armageddon is over and the beast and the false prophet um, in verse 20 and 21 were cast alive into the lake of fire but not the devil himself. We're told here, verse 1, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit with a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more for a 1,000 years. But after these things, he must be released for a little time. Now, in the denomination that I grew up in, they do not believe in a literal thousand-year kingdom reign. And um, what I mentioned to them, well, it's clearly spelled out uh, in Revelation chapter 20. And their comment is usually, "Yeah, but it's only one time." And then my comment is, "Well, how many times do you want it <laughs> before you believe it?" You know. Revelation means just that. It is to unveil. It's not to be cloaked in something of a mystery or it's allegorical or it's a battle between light and darkness, no. Revelation three says, blessed is he who reads this book. I'm special. The last thing it says, and don't mess with it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Sounds to me like the Lord's pretty serious about this book. And yet, most mainline Protestantism, all of Roman Catholicism, are amillennial. They believe we're living in the kingdom age right now. I'm disappointed. I don't know about you. So, the devil is, um, if he's chained right now, like Chuck always used to say, he's on an awful long chain. <laughs> Verse 4. And I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness. So these are martyrs of Jesus and a word of God. They didn't worship the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I take that literally. But the rest of the dead did not live again. Now these are the ones who would have taken the mark of the beast or died during that time outside of Christ. They worshiped the Antichrist. Um, But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ. Notice, and they shall reign with him for a thousand years. When... We come back with the Lord to planet Earth. This tells us what we're going to be doing. We're going to reign and rule with him. And um, so that takes us to four and five on our chart. When we go to six, we have now this place on the bottom that we call hell. We find now that hell is going to be emptied. And um, they are going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. So everybody that's in hell right now, like the rich man who's there, he's in hell. Now we read (coughs) that um, after the thousand years, Satan was released, and he goes out to deceive the nations. Now I want you to think this through. For a thousand years, man has lived with a perfect ruler, a perfect environment, And um, yet people were reproducing and having children. Righteousness was enforced. Doesn't it say that he would rule and reign with a rod of iron? So you were forced to do right. But now if we're going to go into eternity, God doesn't want to force anybody to be with him who doesn't want to be with him. Follow the logic? Love can't be forced. Either I want to be with Jesus or I don't. Either I want to spend eternity with him or do my own thing. Well, during the 1,000-year period of time, there were children that were growing up, and they were forced to go to church, okay? And they really didn't want to. And so now, the reason that Satan is released is to provide an alternative. Now there's you can choose. Choose the Lord and going to eternity with him, or choose the devil, well, it tells us here he went out and deceived many, as many as a number of the sands of the sea, and they came up and actually thought they could fight against the Lord at Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven, and in their history all over. And then the devil that deceived him was cast into the lake of fire And brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And that's what we have um, right here, where we see that Lucifer is forever now cast into the lake of fire. Now, hell is emptied out in verse 11, and we have the great white throne judgment. So, there's two judgments the judgment seat of Christ that receive rewards, and then the great white throne judgment for those who will be judged according to their works. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, found no more place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the book. Every thought, every deed is all being downloaded into these books. Nothing is left out. Some people say, I want my day in court. Prove I'm a good person, okay? We got everything written down. Let's look through it. How were they judged? By the things that were written in the book. And not one of them, because they wanted to be judged by their works, are going to make it to heaven verse 13 then the sea gave up the dead that were in it notice and death and hell delivered up the dead who were in them so this bottom chamber this red one is now emptied and all these people that were in hell are now at the great white throne judgment and they're going to go from the great white throne judgment into what's called the lake of fire which is different than hell so, and they were judged according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is a second death. Well, one of the promises that Jesus made to one of the seven churches, each church received a different promise. But to one of the churches, he said, um, you're blessed because you're gonna be kept from the second death, as if it's some great thi- thing to fear. And guess what? It is some great thing to fear. And I'm going to keep you from that. So this was a promise. You won't be harmed by the second death. What is the second death? Eternal separation for all time in your own thoughts, in real torment, not only physical, but mental and emotional. And this is where I don't want us to become numb to. The reality of that. So that, um, like my pastor friend down in Arizona who has a guy on his staff whose brother's on his deathbed. Get somebody there. Somebody please talk to him. Or like the rich man, he realizes his state. Please, I beg you, send somebody to my five brothers. No, they got the Bible. They're either gonna believe it or not. And um, so we're caught up with all these trivial, nonsensical pursuits that when all is said and done, what's left? Nothing. (laughs) Um, Jerry, when he passed, before we could make funeral arrangements, his sister said he had everything written out what he wanted for his funeral. And uh, we couldn't contact a funeral director until we got his list. And um, so I was talking to his sister from California, and she said, go out to his house, Here's the combination to get in, and there's a filing cabinet by his desk, and I think it's in there. So we went into Jerry's house. Oh, beautiful house. And he's, he had just so many things that were there. And sure enough, we opened up the filing cabinet, and the first thing we found was his wishes for his funeral and just how he wanted it. He wanted it to be here. He wanted me to do it. But I'm, I'm looking around, I'm thinking... Jerry's gone but I feel sorry for the family because they got to deal with all this stuff <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff that's there I mean what else can you call it it's stuff and when you go it is all left behind every bit of it I was kidding with them about it I said I'm glad I don't have to take care of this stuff <laughs> that's, that's, in, that's in your corner So let's go to the very, very last one here, eternity, and for this one, we have, I'd like you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter one. Eternity, I agree with this gentleman who put this chart together except here. He puts the new Jerusalem, and when there's a new heaven and a new earth, a single place. Now, There is a new Jerusalem, and there is a new heaven and a new earth, but I don't believe they're connected. Um, I take the view that the new Jerusalem is going to be, well, the Bible tells us it's 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high. You can either come up with a cube with that, or you can come up with a pyramid with that. But what J. Vernon McGee did is he asked um, a mathematician what would the circumference be if you put that all in a spear? And um, I sort of take that view of this because what is our heavenly home that we're going to be living in forever? Well, we know it's got 12 different layers, 12 foundations, and every one of them is a precious stone. And the very center of it is the throne. It says there is no sun, but the light that now lights the universe comes from the inside of the New Jerusalem. So the way I picture it in my mind's eye, our, our eternal home is separate from planet Earth. or oh, we'll have access to it. But, you know, it's Valentine's Day, maybe you bought your sweetie a ring or something like that. And when you, um, when you go to the jeweler, they, they shine a light on that stone so you can see the glisten and the glow of it. But imagine the light coming from the inside out, going through the streets of pure, transparent gold, and then through these layers, emerald, ruby, and all these precious stones. And what if the outside layer was crystal or diamond? Now, if we're the bride of Christ, I think that's a pretty good wedding present. A diamond and the light itself of God shining out from that The beauty that that would enhance is beyond description. But the earth, I think, is gonna be created again, but also in a sphere form. And when you do the dimensions, you have planet earth. We know the circumference and dimensions of that. But basically, the new Jerusalem is about the size of the moon. And I think the center of whatever God's new heaven and new earth is will be Uh, And that's the only place where I take a little exception with this guy. I see him as being separate, but certainly there. And that's where we will spend all of our eternity. On the other hand, those who are lost will be forever separated from God. Now, sidetrack. There is a doctrine that I want to expose this morning. It's called dual covenant theology. It deals with how God will judge Israel as a nation. If you're unfamiliar with the terminology of dual covenant theology, let me explain it this way. God has made one covenant unconditionally with Israel and then he made another covenant, New Testament, just with Gentiles. That's why they call it two, dual. One for the Jew, They will go to heaven simply because they're Jews and God's everlasting covenants and then one for the Gentiles. I would like to address that by having you turn to Romans chapter one, verse six, and let's see what the Bible teaches on this subject. Israel is unique. All the promises that God made, the keeping of this book, the promises, the covenants, were given to Israel. Paul, in addressing them, in Romans um, 1 verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also for the Greeks or the Gentiles. Clear enough to me, Turn to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. 9, 10, and 11 are the chapters in the Bible that explains how God is going to deal with the Jewish people. Remember, Paul is a Jew. Verse 1 of chapter 9. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in The Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed for Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Did you catch that? Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all, the eternal blessed God, amen. Paul is saying here, if he could, in verse three, that he would allow himself to be eternally separated from God and go to hell if it meant the Jewish people could be saved. That's what he's saying. Now, guys, I love you. But... (laughs) (laughs) Dylan put it this way I ain't going to hell for nobody I ain't going to hell for nobody I know too much about this book and the consequences but what it should what we should carry on our hearts is that I wish I could say that Paul he meant it but just the thought of his own people after all they've been through Zacharias says when they see him when they say Jesus, they're gonna say, where did you get those wounds in your hands? And he's gonna say, I got them in the house of my friends. And so, does a Jew have to be saved or are they saved just because they're Jews? Chapter 10, verse one. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Can it be made any more clear than that? For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Righteousness to the, the Pharisees, well, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner over there. I tithe and, I, and um, he goes through his list of good works and the sinner's there beating his breast saying, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, which one of those two guys do you think went home forgiven? Well, the guy who repented. The Pharisee had their own righteousness, but it's apart from God's righteousness. I'm righteous because Jesus Christ died in my place and gave me his righteousness, and he took my sin. That's called grace. And so it can't be made any clearer than that. The two main proponents who hold up dual covenant theology which to me is dangerous and it needs to be exposed, the names need to be named. John Hagee, a very popular uh, pastor out of Texas, and Pat Robertson out in Virginia hold to this false doctrine. So when we get into stuff like this uh, from time to time, I need to take sidetracks and expose things that um, would stop me from sharing the gospel with somebody because he's Jewish. Now, if I meet a Jew and I know he's a Jew, this is what I tell him. I like you a little bit better than normal people. And I'm saying it because it's purely selfish motives. Because my Bible says if I bless, God will bless those who bless you, but he will curse those who curse you, and I just as soon have the blessing rather than the curse. So I like you. You're a nice guy. (laughs) You know, they don't have a clue what I'm talking about usually, but... They're special. I mean, just think about it. I don't care what field you go to, mathematics, um, uh, the music world, areas of business, industry, you'll find almost without exception at the top of the ladder a Jew. And it's not fair. God gave them just more brain cells than he did me. (laughs) And he blessed them. They are a blessed people. They're God's chosen people. And it's a heartbreak for Paul to think that they had all this, but they missed it. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And it's one of the few times that Jesus wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would not, I would not have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her children, chicks, but you would not. They, they did not believe on him. And so he said, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Are they going to do that? Yeah, they're going to do that. And Petra, at the very, very end of um, the, the tribulation period, Hosea talks about it, and I don't have time to go there. But they call out. I believe it's because of the witnessing of the two witnesses. But they, according to um, um, chapter 10 here, verse 28, and all Israel will be saved as, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away in righteousness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. That's uh, Romans 11, verse 26. All right, let's, let's um, go to this one last chart which is sort of an overview. You see the cross, and then you see the number three. Let me explain what the, the three is all about. When Jesus died on the cross, <clears throat> of course, he was, he was in um, the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Turn with me to First Peter chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Peter chapter four, verse six. And I'll admit up front that, that uh, many Bible, good Bible teachers uh, don't have the same interpretation as what I'm gonna present to you this morning. So if Jesus went to the heart of the earth for three days, we read in chapter four, verse six, it said, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the spirit. Remember Abraham's bosom. Um, Jesus has now died on the cross. His blood has been shed and now we have all these people that died in faith and are according to Hebrews 10 waiting for the promise to come. What did he do? Well, I think he preached the gospel to them. And he explained to them the fullness that it's not the shedding, continual shedding of it. I've never read it in a commentary. I've never heard anybody say it. But I felt the Lord, I asked him, I said, well, what did you preach? It says the gospel. But I think he laid out to Hebrew people the book of Hebrews. That's what Paul did. He had to explain to a group of people that were so caught in their tradition. Can't you see Tevri just saying, Tradition! (laughs) It's deep. And so how do you undo that when it's so thickly ingrained in everyday culture, every Friday night, the same routine, the Sabbath, and all that goes along with it? The yearly rituals of Passover, Pentecost, Sukkot. And now you want to change that? Paul does. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. What did Jesus do when he was there? He explained the gospel to him. Time has come. Ephesians 4 said before he ascended, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth and he set the captives free. Well, they, they believed on him. And what's interesting is that after Matthew 27, verse 52 says, After his resurrection, it says, many of the graves in Jerusalem were opened and dead people appeared to their relatives. Well, what's that all about? Well, the guy's got it right on his chart here. They went from Abraham's bosom to heaven. There's no place called Abraham's bosom anymore. But this verse here, and what the Lord said to to them, I believe, that he was presenting that he was the one that they were waiting for. And um, they were taken from this place of comfort, and now, uh, as it says here, paradise now empty, but uh, hell still remaining. Well, our role during the millennial reign, let's go back to um, Ezekiel 34. The true shepherd, what's next on the list? Well, I think the rapture of the church is next. I think the Ezekiel 38 war could be next. I think the destruction of Damascus, Isaiah 17 could be next. All that could happen this year very easily. And um, then we enter after that, the tribulation, then we go into millennium. Gang, as we look at our text this morning, the true shepherd, he's saying that after all they've been through, your future's bright. And you're going to reign and rule with me. That's what we read in, in Revelation. He also said to the church of Thyatira, I'm quoting Revelation 2, verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, I will give power over the nations. So we're going to rule and reign with him. You know, the idea of people saying, well, heaven's going to be boring. We're going to be sitting up there strumming a harp on some little cloud, blah, blah, blah. No, you're not. Luke 17 said about the parable of the steward, because he was faithful in very little, he was going to have authority over 10 cities. It sounds like we have administrative rules. The Lord doesn't get into detail, but I'm sure he's going to explain it all when we enter into that period of time. Here, the true shepherd is saying what he's going to do is he's gonna, let me, let me quote McGee here as, as we wrap this up this morning. McGee puts it this way. It's my firm conviction that the earth will be the eternal home of Israel and that David will rule here on the earth throughout eternity he will be vice-regent of the Lord Jesus. I believe the church will be in the New Jerusalem with the Lord, the Lord Jesus, because he's our bride, groom, and he he's coming again to take his church. These are God's words of comfort to the children of Israel in their captivity. The whole book of Ezekiel is nothing but a downer. But now, McGee is saying here, To those in captivity. um, These are words of comfort. They should listen to him. He's the shepherd, the good shepherd. And um, this, as from this point on, it's nothing but encouragement. Dark times are over. You have Israel, a bright future. Please close with John chapter 10. Usually on a Saturday morning men's Study, we can crack out three chapters as we go around and read and pray. But when we got to chapter nine, I noticed that chapter 10 was titled The Good Shepherd. So I said, guys, let's do one more chapter. And we read all of John chapter 10 yesterday during men's prayer. And I'll close with this this morning. Verse one, most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way the same as a thief or a robber, But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. Now, Jesus used this illustration but they did not understand the thing which he spoke to them. Now he's going to say it plainly. He's going to say, look, listen up, guys. He says, I am the door in verse 7. Everything that ever came before me were thieves and robbers. So go ahead, fill in the blank of any other religion, any other man, any other way. They were false prophets. They were presenting the wrong way, Because there's only one way you're going to get to heaven. There's only one door. There was only one door Noah's Ark. know that? And the Bible says God shut that door. And those that were in the Ark got saved. And that Ark came to land on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th of Nisan. Why give us the date? Why tell us? Well, the 17th of Nisan is three days after the 14th of Nisan. Well, what's that? Oh, that's Passover. That's the day Jesus died. Anything of significance happened three days later on the 17th? Yeah, came to rest. It's all over. When Jesus said, To tell us, die, it is finished, work accomplished, done, we have it in picture form. Now Jesus is saying, I am the door. No other way. The only way to get saved, and the analogy is they go up. Judgment's done, they come back down. What's the tribulation? We go up, judgment comes, and then what? We come back down. Perfect fit. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, if anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. And he'll go in and out and find pasture. I have written underneath that, satisfaction. Peace, come and go as you will and contentment. The one who is sowing all the tares is the thief. In verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. He hates you. He wants you dead. He wants you in hell. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And a good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he was a hireling and not a shepherd one who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them and the hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep but I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. Ezekiel chapter 34 as we make our way through the Bible the section is called the true shepherd. He says, I'm gonna gather my people back together, my people Israel. I'm gonna put them back in their land. Question, has that happened? Yeah, he did exactly what he said. And then he he goes and he lays out into the future about David. My closing question is simple this morning. Do you know him? If somebody asks you, how is it that you're gonna get into heaven, what's your answer? Blood of the lamb, grace, any other way, put me in the equation, and I'm in big trouble. So it's a gift, and do you know him? Can you say that the Lord is my shepherd? I'm satisfied, I shall not want. And if something else is taking that place, be honest, that's your God. Just be honest about it. If you have something other than Jesus Christ uh, at as your God, <clears throat> and then be honest what it is, and I could list a lot of things out here this morning. But um, as as we're closing, my prayer is that as Jesus said, wherever your wherever your heart is, that that's where your treasure is. You can tell by just looking at your heart and be honest with that. Amen. I went a little after my time, not too much. Let's stand, we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your grace, Lord, and your mercy and your goodness. All we can do, as the disciples said, Lord, tell us what work we can do that we might have eternal life. And he looked at them and said, this is the work of God that you believe on him who he has sent. Is it really that easy? And the answer is yes. Lord, we know that this is the most important question we'll ever have to ask ourselves are we trusting in our own works or are we at rest like you rested and said to tell us die and are at peace and we're satisfied and content for any that are not and are not sure about their salvation i pray for that person this morning lord as your word says today if you hear my voice don't harden your heart and so i pray for a tender heart that they would by faith simply accept you and, Lord, we give you all the praise and all the things. In Jesus' name, amen.